0: So where do we get the strength to stand firm? Where do we get the strength to have a hard look at ourselves as individuals, as a congregation and a society? The more we spend time in the pages of His Word, that's where our strength comes from. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Today's scripture reading comes from the New Testament book of Revelation. And so we're turning to Revelation chapter 2 this morning and reading verses 12 to 18. And you'll find it on page 1915 of the Church Bible. Page 1915, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. As most of you know, over the last few Sundays, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and today we're coming to the letter from Christ to the church in Pergamum. And the Apostle John is writing this letter dictated by the risen Christ, and he begins this way, "'To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, "'These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword.'" I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Amen. And we trust and believe that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Last week, I was reading an article written by a head coach. And when the coach was asked about how does he nourish a winning team and a team that wins with consistency, he gave eight or nine major headings that he expects his team members to live up to. So I was reading it, I thought there are some helpful stuff here. Now as the journalist began to interact with the coach, this is what he said. He says, in order to nourish a winning team and a winning culture, we need to focus on Commitment, responsibility, accountability, integrity, respect, trust, leadership, courage, compassion, service, and humility. He says that's how you develop a culture of a winning team. And when I read that, I found myself so engaged in it, I began to think of that broader sense what do you mean when you talk about a culture? Well, for the first 1700 years in the Western world, we thought about culture as it relates to horticulture or agriculture. And in essence, the picture in our minds was this, that we come to a piece of land, especially if you're in a farming community, and you till that land, and you fertilize that land, and then you plant, and then, of course, you provide enough sunshine and water in the hope that it will grow something of significance and value, a produce you can eat. In other words, they are taking the bare essentials of what they have, they are cultivating and nourishing it to produce something good and valuable and worthwhile. And that's what culture meant for those first 1,700 years. But around the 17th century, it began to take on a wider meaning. And it began to take on a wider meaning in this sense. It began to be talked about in terms of education, philosophy, art, music, And in the 17th century, when someone was considered cultured, they were considered well-educated. But in the 20th century, it took on a new meaning, and it moved from educated to a comprehensible meaning of this. Everything became part of the culture. Sociologists and anthropologists in the 21st century would say this, culture is the shared beliefs and values, the shared conventions and social practices of a subgroup or an entire society in which we are taking all of the raw material and experiences of everyday life, rearranging it, cultivating for want of a better expression, in order to express meaning in order to express what we think is good and true, real and important. And so when the coach talks about nourishing a culture that creates a winning team, that's what he was talking about, taking the basic experiences of all of his players, giving them a greater experience, reining them in, giving purpose and direction to his team, giving them a sense of we can do this, and he's nourishing a winning team. He's creating a culture. Now, you may be sitting there this morning saying, Richard, okay, I get that, but You also talked of culture in regard to music, theater, education. How does all that work? How does culture, how does the analogy work with music, for example? Well, of course, the composer takes the various notes, arranges them in a method that others can identify with, others can often, and good night, how often have we heard a piece of music that's moved us and we think, okay, I get it, that's what's going on there. When it comes to soundtrack, last, uh, let's have a think, about the middle of December, my son Michael and I went off to the movies one night and we sat there, and as soon as the soundtrack was played, the movie hadn't started. As soon as the soundtrack came on, the entire theater applauded. I'm going to ask John if he can play the soundtrack for us, because as soon as you hear the soundtrack, you know what's coming. There's an expectation, a sense of what it should be like. John. Was there anyone here who didn't recognize Star Wars? It is so much part and parcel of our culture. That's why applause broke out in the theater. We knew what was coming. We had a sense of where we were going. It makes sense of what we're involved in. Now, when Jesus is writing to the church in Pergamum, He is saying to them, look at the culture around you. Is it a culture you're comfortable with? Is it a culture in which you want to raise your children and your grandchildren? Is it a culture you can identify with? Is it a culture you can engage with? And as the passage unfolds, the folks at Pergamum are forced to take a real hard look at themselves and ask some tough questions. Now, over the last few weeks, as we've been working our way through Revelation, we've said on a number of occasions that as a church, we are intentional about being a place of grace, a place of prayer, a place for you to have a sense of belonging shared values with purpose and focus and direction in our ministry? And those are similar questions that the folks at Pergamum are about to be asked. And it begins the passage with what? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, let me pause right there, give you a word of explanation, then we'll quickly move on. The sharp double-edged sword was a symbol of the magistrates of the Roman Empire. The sword they held in their hand was a symbol of power and authority and rule and dominion. And what Jesus is saying here by using symbolism that the folks at Pergamum would be very much aware of, he is saying to them this, that ultimately it will not be Rome who has the final say, But it will be the living God. And these are the words of him who holds that sword. In other words, he's saying to the folks at Pergamum, pay attention. This is serious. Hear what is about to be said. And then he goes on and he says, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Now, those words are stark and strong, And when you read them for the first time, you think, Good night, what is going on here? There was a city in AD 95 where Satan had his throne. That's where he lived. Now, folks, if you worship with us regularly on a Sunday morning, you will not hear me talk about Satan every Sunday but it's right here in this passage. And if we're ever to understand the goodness and the grace and the love and wonder of God, you have to understand what stands in opposition to it as well. And right here in the year AD 95, Jesus with measured language says, I know where you live. It's the place where Satan has his throne, where Satan lives. Now, You think, how on earth can Jesus say that? Well, it's for several reasons. And the first is this. If you were a citizen of Pergamum back then, you would know that it was a city who was the capital city of the Roman province. It was ruled and governed by Roman magistrates. It had a library of over 200,000 items. That was impressive. It would be impressive today, never mind back then. Thirdly, It had three temples set out to worship Roman gods, and particularly the emperor. Now, if you've been here over the last two Sundays, you'll know the emperor is Domitian, and he was not a nice guy, and he was persecuting the church and had put people to death for their faith, and he expected everyone to worship him. There were several other temples relating to Greek and to Roman gods as well, and Temple worship was a big deal back then, huge deal. It dominated the entire city with the number of temples of probably somewhere between six and seven. And clearly, as you go on reading the passage, Jesus says, I know where you live, and I know that is where Satan has his throne. And there was significant pressure being brought on Christians back then to compromise their beliefs and be involved in emperor worship. And what's more than that, this also took place. If you were never seen at the temple offering food to sacrifices or to the emperor, you became an individual whom people kind of held at arm's length. They were a little suspicious of you. You were unpatriotic. You did not go along supporting Caesar and all that was happening, and therefore you were a bit odd and weird and would be held at arm's length. And last week, we noticed at the church in Smyrna, people were marginalized and minimized because of their faith. But here in Pergamum, we discover that Antipas lost his life because of his faith. And Jesus is saying to the folks in Pergamum, I know where you are live. In other words, I know what you're facing each day. I know that sense of unrelenting pressure. I know the social pressure that's put on you, and you have to live in the midst of it. And he's about to say to them, well done. For standing firm in your faith. You did not renounce my name. You did not walk away from me, even when Antipas was put to death. Even when he was put to death. Folks, hold that thought and transport yourself to the Middle East today when ISIS, in all of their barbarity, are executing Christians right, left, and center because of their faith. The idea that dying for your faith only belonged to the year AD 95 is a false idea. More Christians lost their lives in 2015 as a direct result of their faith than in the previous 50 years. More just last year. Now we're beginning to get a sense and a feel of what's going on at Pergamum, the fears, the uncertainties, the concern. What about my children? What happens if I'm taken? What happens if they're taken? And when Jesus writes to the church at Pergamum and he says to them, I know where you live. I understand. I see you. I'm grateful for you. And you have not walked away. You've not renounced my name. And I imagine the sense of relief just washing over the folks at Pergamum as they hear that letter from Jesus. Quite remarkable. He begins with encouragement and strengthening the folks, and then he highlights where they need to, areas of growth and development. And he's crystal clear about it. And he says, nevertheless, I have A few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth." He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. what is Jesus challenging them to do? He's telling them in many, many aspects of their lives they are doing a remarkable job of faithfulness and consistency. And then he says, But nevertheless, there are some among you who are teaching and involved in sexual immorality. And why is Jesus saying to the folks in Pergamum, why is he highlighting this issue? He's highlighting the issue for this reason. Remember where we started this morning. A culture does what? Reflects the values and the focus of the people who inhabit that culture. And the folks who were inhabiting Pergamum not only had all of these temples to emperor worship and pagan worship, Greco-Roman gods, they also had immoral behavior going on in those temples. And it was so common. It was an everyday experience, and it was considered absolutely normal for a man to go to one of the temples to worship and become involved in immoral behavior either before his worship or after the act of worship. Now, both you and I know that that is so distasteful, so utterly appalling there was no act of worship taking place. And what Jesus is saying to the folks in Pergamum is this, Culturally, you are surrounded by one temple after another, after another, after another, but it is a dead, mechanical religion of no significance and no value. In fact, it degrades those involved. That's the point he's making. And he's saying to the folks in Pergamum, Is that the culture you wish to raise your children and your grandchildren in? Is that something of significance and value? Is that are we describing that which is good and helpful and healthy? It was the opposite. And that's why with considerable anger and distaste, he says, you are in a culture where Satan has his throne. It's where he lives, right there. That's what was going on. Now, hold that picture. Let's seek to apply it to ourselves Today, we live in a day and age where compromise of beliefs is often slow, silent, and subtle. That's how erosion works slow, silent, subtle. You almost never see it coming. And we find ourselves as Christian people. Seeking at a congregation and as individuals and in our families and in our homes to nourish spiritual excellence in order that we can impact the culture we live in. But I often wonder if the culture isn't having more of an impact on us than we are on it. And the very issue that Jesus mentions here is a very real issue for us in 21st century Greenville, and it's that of sexual immorality. You only have to put on the television set and flick through several channels, and it's not only late at night, sometimes the middle of the afternoon, you find yourself aghast, thinking, what on earth has happened here? Because as individuals, as a church, as a denomination, we take a very firm stance on sexual ethics. We're absolutely convinced that the Scripture teaches this. Fidelity in marriage, faithfulness in marriage, and chastity in singleness. In other words, intimate relations between a husband and a wife are exclusive to and restricted to marriage. Why? Because it is so intimate, so tender, so sacred that we would never want to break those marriage vows ever, despite the temptation of the culture around us. And so when your grandchildren or your children come to you with a question relating to sexual ethics, your job is simply to say, do you want God's very, very best for you? Or do you want to settle for something less? And as Christians, we seek to impact the culture around us we are called to be salt and light. We're not called to take our sexual ethics from the media or the gossip columns or the folks in our work office or the folks in our neighborhoods or from the movies. We are called to take our sexual ethics from the Scriptures, and we do so gladly because we know that is God's perfect and goodwill for us and we know it in our own experience as well because when an individual compromises the sacredness of those marriage vows it always 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 ends in disaster and pain and the fracturing of a relationship always And so, as he's saying to the church in Pergamum, look around at the culture around you, and are you willing to stand against it and say, I will not go down there? And what's more, I think it is cheap and degrading and filthy, and I will not go there. When we, as the church across the United States, take a single stance on this issue, the culture will listen. But if we say, it's no big deal, it really doesn't matter, we, in fact, have become the culture rather than standing against it. Now, remember where we began. We began by saying what? That our job in terms of our faith, is to what? Nourish a culture of spiritual excellence within in order to engage the culture without. Now, there are many, many wonderful things going on in our culture, many of them, but there are many others that are utterly distasteful and half to be held up for what they are. Now, please understand this. Once you take that stance in your personal life, once you take that stance as a congregation and a denomination, that will not be popular. It will not be well received. But what Jesus is doing is this, saying to the church in Pergamum, just as much as he is saying to us, that when we engage with the culture around us, we do so in a manner that is winsome, and attractive, and wholesome, and shows what? The wonder, and the love, and the grace of God. And to finish, when Jesus writes to them and says, now, repent. What does he mean by repent? Repentance means this that you were set in heading in a particular direction, and you come to the point where you realize it is a disaster, and you turn and you walk the other way. You don't hang out back there. You turn and walk the other way. And that's why Jesus closes by saying to them, to those who overcome, to those who overcome, I will give what? hidden manna and a white stone with your name on it. Last week, I looked at 14 different commentaries, dictionaries on this passage, and none of them could agree what the white stone was. They came down to seven classic interpretations of the white stone. So in fact, biblical scholars don't know what it means, but most of them said this, the hidden manna is what? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, the Scriptures. So where do we get the strength to stand firm? Where do we get the strength to have a hard look at ourselves as individuals, as a congregation and a society? The more we spend time in the pages of His Word, that's where our strength comes from. So the next time you find yourself in a scenario that you're tempted just to go along with the culture around you, ask the question, am I more Christ-like by going down this road or am I less Christ-like? And the answer, sadly, all too often is less Christ-like. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture this morning. And we recognize that it is a challenging passage of Scripture. Father, we often pray that we would develop and nourish a culture of excellence in our own spiritual lives. And yet, Father, we hesitate to take it to the next level. And that because of that culture of excellence... We need to engage the culture around us. Father, help us please to take that seriously in our own lives, in our corporate lives, and in the life of the church across the United States. Maybe, may we please be known as a people who are faithful to you and faithful in every area of our lives. Father, strengthen us, walk along with us, enable us by your grace to stand for you and show consistency in our living. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. If you're interested in membership at First Presbyterian or want to learn more about our church and denomination, join us for our next First Look class on Sunday mornings. Register by calling 235-0496 or email us at us at firstpressgreendale.org.